The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Sure. Once inflation expectations set in, then uh, inflation becomes even more entrenched. But you do not need to see it in expectations for inflation to start uh, to basically becoming more entrenched. All you need is for wage earners to try to recoup the big losses that they have actually made as a result of inflation. And then for firms to try and pass on those increased costs. Can central banks finally defeat inflation? In this exchange, I sit down with Claudio Borio, head of the Monetary and Economic Department at the Bank for International Settlements, to talk about central banks' response to inflation, fiscal policy, the decoupling of the global economy, and much, much more. Welcome to the exchange. I'm Francesco Guerrera, Global Economics Editor at Breaking Views. Today, I'm chatting to Claudio Borio, Head of the Monetary and Economic Department at the Bank for International Settlements. And we'll talk about how central banks have coped with the massive increase in inflation, how the future looks when governments are trying to avoid a recession while central banks are trying to finally defeat inflation, and how the world will look in a few years' time once the era of globalization is coming to an end. Well, Mr. Borio, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And let's start straight from the beginning. As part of the Bank for International Settlements role, you uh, look at the performance of central banks. And I'm curious to hear your assessment on how you think they've done uh, in dealing with the um, inflation spike that we experienced over the past 18 months or so, uh, and whether they could have done more, as the critics say. Yes, well, that's uh, that's a very good question. As um, let me start by saying that um, obviously central banks were surprised by the intensity and the persistence of of inflation, and by the way, they were not alone. Uh, most people were, uh, and even us, uh, we were sort of uh, surprised to to some extent. Um, we had looked in previous year about in a previous annual report about what could happen to inflation. And we really, we struggled to come up with scenarios in which it would be high. We did manage to, but it was not easy. Um, So that's the first point. The second point is that they clearly caught up very quickly after having Mm -hmm. realized that um, uh, they had underestimated the the inflationary pressures. And in fact, what we have seen has been the most synchronized and intense um, monetary policy tightening in decades. Uh, and yeah. now, and for some time now, they have been laser focused on laser focused on getting inflation down, and 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 that uh, we should have no questions about that. The third point I would say is that going forward, um, what we call the last mile is very likely to be the hardest. Mm-hmm. So, it's like the easy gains have already been uh, uh, reaped. I'm thinking of. For example, the fact that commodity prices have been uh, falling. I'm thinking of the fact that bottlenecks have largely disappeared, global bottlenecks. And harder, harder both economically, I, I would say from an economic uh, and also from a political economy perspective. Economic because uh, we have seen a shift from goods to services. Yeah. Uh, whose prices tend to be more sticky, partly because the labor component is 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 bigger, and also because uh, the longer inflation stays high, 
uh, the harder it is to bring it down because the more likely it is that an inflation psychology sets in. Um, Are we, uh, do you think we are in danger of that in the major economies that the inflation expectations get uh, so high that then inflation kind of uh, it becomes I, a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, this is clearly a risk uh, that we uh, think is material and that we discuss in quite some detail in the annual mm -hmm. economic report. But let me uh, let me add, if I may, something on, on this issue of expectations. And uh, yeah. something that we stressed also in, in the annual economic report last year is that, sure, once inflation expectations uh, set in, uh, then uh, inflation becomes even more entrenched. But you do not need to see it in expectations for inflation to start uh, to basically becoming more entrenched. All you need, all mm -hmm. you need is for wage earners to try to um, recoup the big losses that they have actually made as a result of inflation. Yeah. And then for firms to try and pass on those, uh, those increased costs. And uh, clearly wage earners have lost quite a lot in terms of purchasing power because of inflation. And now that firms have seen that they have uh, greater, uh, if you like, pricing power than they thought, I mean, it's much easier for you to raise prices if you see your competitors uh, are raising prices and that your competitors are raising prices because everyone is facing high costs. Right. So the risk of this wage price spiral is something which is quite material. And let's talk for a second about this pricing power issue because there's a big debate between people who call it uh, greedflation, i.e. Yeah firms taking advantage of inflation to uh, increase prices over and above the rate of inflation and padding their margins as a result. And people who say that it's just uh, the rising cost and, and they're just passing it on. What is your, uh, what, where do you stand on that debate? I, honestly, I don't think that it is a particularly fruitful debate. Um, mm -hmm. Inflation is a, uh, a phenomenon in which uh, price increase Wages increase and each, they chase each other. And mm -hmm. the original reason for the increase uh, can be quite different. Um, for example, one reason, if, if I go back to the 70s, I was still too young, but I remember the experience. Um, you know, in those days, uh, labor was quite militant and there was quite a lot of uh, attempts to push wages, wages up, um, partly in response to the increase in commodity prices and the like. Uh, but you can have, a, and I think it's something that we saw recently, you had a strong increase in, in aggregate demand, uh, which was following the pandemic, yeah. which met with very inelastic supply for all of the reasons that we know. And then, of course, if you have demand rising and the supply not keeping up, well, what's going to happen? Prices are going to go up. So I would not apportion blame in all this. I mm -hmm. think it's not particularly fruitful. It's just that we have an inflationary process and we have to deal with it. Yeah. And as you said, the banks, the central banks have been dealing with, with it with this synchronized, steep, sharp increase in interest rates. That's the only thing that they can do. <laughs> right. Right. The, the one thing, the danger is always, though, that they overdo it. Right. So you talked about the last mile being the hardest. But there's also this, this concept, this economic concept of, of, of long and variable lags, i.e. that interest rates take time to have an effect on the real economy. Sure, so sure. How, how, do you, how do the two kind of play, um, play along? Because it's difficult to see. No, you're right. I mean, I, I would say that 
policy, all policy, and including therefore also monetary policy, is fundamentally about weighing risks, the risk of doing too much, the risk of doing too little, and, and so on. And there are always risks are going both ways. Now, what we think, for the reasons that I mentioned, given where we are at present, we think that the risk of doing too little is bigger than the risk of doing too much. Um, and that uh, the, the priority now is to bring inflation down. And for the reasons that I mentioned, if you, if the longer inflation uh, stays uh, at a high level and the longer it persists, the harder it's going to be to bring it down. So it's not that the costs are going to be smaller. If anything, by delaying the costs that will be there to some extent, you are basically increasing the cost down the road. And you don't want to, you know, the proverbial kicking the can down the road. That would be a problem. But it is, uh, I, let me stress, it is, uh, it is a judgment call and it is not an easy judgment call. Yeah. The risk being, the main risk being that the central banks do too much and tip their own economies into a recession, which, however, hasn't materialized in the Eurozone, hasn't materialized in the US, uh, in other major economies. How do you explain the resilience uh, of, of, of these major economies? Um, well, I would say there are some specific and some general factors at play. Um, the specific factor is that, for example, if you take Europe, uh, the, which was a, a uh, expected to go into a recession, um, we, we had a mild winter. Um, yeah. Europe was also uh, very effective at dealing with the gas, gas shortage. Mm. Then we had China. China's uh, a strong rebound after the zero COVID policy was effectively abandoned overnight. Um, but then more generally, I think we did underestimate the underlying strength of the economy for two reasons. One is um, that, you know, if you put the lid on something and suddenly you take it off, boom, the thing is going to sort of uh, explode or at least uh, go up a lot. And, and I think that at the time, I remember there was a lot of talk about psychological scarring. That yeah, consumers yeah. would be scarred and would not spend and so on. And actually, we didn't see any of that. If mm -hmm. anything, they tried to recover, you know, the time that they lost in, in their consumption. And the second reason which we should not underestimate is the very generous support uh, that the economy had from both fiscal but also from, from monetary policy. For example, in the case, just to pick one single case uh, in the United States, the growth in disposable income of households was just about the strongest in decades, strongest in right. decades, despite the fact that there was a recession. Yeah. And now if you look around the world, a big surprise is that unemployment, unemployment is at historical lows in many, many, many countries, which suggests that that has kept labor income up. Yes. And therefore, there, is a, there has been a lot of underlying strength in, 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 in the economy. Balance sheets of households as a result of all this, or at least the accumulated saving that they can run down. Of course, you can run down savings up to a point, and then uh, you could have non-linear, if you like, tipping, uh, tipping points. Um, you mean a sudden drop uh, in household in, in yeah. income? And, yeah. right. Would that then, do you think that at this stage then, it's inevitable to see recessions in major economies, even if they're shallow, if they're short. It's yeah, we never use the term inevitable for, for anything. 
I mean, it's quite possible. And, you know, it's, uh, as we like to say, the path is narrow. But let's see. Let's see. But one thing is, is, is clear. Uh, if it takes a, a, a significant slowdown in aggregate demand and uh, the for in growth in order to get inflation down, well, that is a price that uh, we will need to pay. Again, it's, it's an intertemporal, what we like to call intertemporal trade-off. You pay a smaller price now to avoid a bigger price later on. And you mentioned fiscal policy, which was a big help yeah. uh, in the years of the pandemic, especially in major economies, in developed economies. It's clear why central banks need to act as the way they act. The issue is, of course, the governments don't like to be blamed for recessions. So you're starting to see governments trying to push back against the central banks' um, actions by uh, essentially losing their fiscal taps. Um, what's your uh, prescription to them? What's your advice to those governments? <laughs> Um, well, uh, the advice is, is rather simple, in fact. Uh, it's consolidate. Uh, there is a need for governments to consolidate. There is a need for them consolidate to Consolidate means uh, to, to do less, to spend to less. Definitely and actually less, start yes. saving. Yeah. And actually to start, I mean, the, 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 there are two reasons for this. One is, is if you just take a short-term perspective, but uh, there is an even more important reason if you take a longer-term perspective. Short term, uh, you know, over the past, let's say, year or so, a, a bit beyond that, if you take the cumulative impact, fiscal policy has been adding to aggregate demand in order to shield uh, households and firms yeah. from higher commodity prices and, in some cases, food prices. Uh, at the same time, monetary policy has been restraining aggregate demand. And obviously, they have been pulling in opposite direction where when in fact the key priority as i mentioned earlier is to bring inflation down now the concern the concern is that the more fiscal policy adds to aggregate demand the more monetary policy will have to do which means that interest rates will have to be bigger higher for longer which means that financial stress and maybe we can discuss a little bit of that the likelihood of financial stress is going to be even higher and i think that's not a place where we would like to be that's for the near term. Longer term, there is absolutely a, a, a need for fiscal policy to consolidate because debt to GDP ratios are on a unsustainable path. Um, they are so even if, even if interest rates remain below growth rates, which is quite a favorable uh, configuration. And in fact, partly because of this, we, we second chapter two of the annual economic report is fully devoted to the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy, but not so much from the short term policy mix perspective that's dealt in chapter one, but from a longer term perspective, because we think we think that going forward, that's going to be is going to be one of the big economic questions that uh, economy uh, that uh, countries will have to face. And let's talk about financial instability for a second. We did have an episode, yeah. a couple of episodes, in the US and, and in Europe uh, in around February, March. Then things have gone quiet. You rightly point out that if interest rates keeps ratcheting it up like that, there will be an increased risk. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the risk? And is it within the traditional banking sector or the uh, the, the, the non-banking sector? Where, where are the risks? Uh, first of all, let me just say that what we're seeing, we haven't seen in the post-war period, okay? which is a situation in which central banks are having to tighten in order to bring inflation down at the same time as we see widespread financial vulnerabilities. 
we have never seen this before so mm -hmm. we need to be very watchful uh, and it's going to be a bumpy ride so that's mm -hmm. point number one in terms of where we see the the bigger risks uh, first of all, the banking sector. Uh, we um, definitely the banking sector is in much better shape, or is in better shape than it was before the great financial crisis, and it's largely as a result of uh, the post-crisis financial reforms. Yeah, much yeah. higher capital and so on and so forth. Now, at the same time, what we have seen so far is that that has not spared episodes of stress in, in, in the banking system in the United States and in, in Switzerland and, and, and so on. Now, what we have seen so far is the, largely speaking, the, the materialization of interest rate risk. What we haven't yet seen is the materialization of credit risk. And there are going to be credit losses because of the high levels of debt, because of the high levels of asset prices, because the economy is, uh, interest rates are going to stay up for longer, because the economy is going to uh, weaken. And because of all of this, the question is, uh, how, uh, how, uh, what's the position of the banking system to withstand any possible losses? But as I said, the banking system, generally speaking, is in better shape than it was uh, before the GFC. So that's very good news. And in the annual economic report, we analyze the size of the possible losses and what that could imply for capital levels and so on and so forth. Point number one. Point number two is that where we see, uh, we actually have seen for quite some time, more risks is within the non-bank financial yeah. uh, sector. Uh, and so here we're talking about hedge funds, asset managers, you know, right. uh, non-traditional financial institutions essentially yeah, yeah. that we saw uh, already running into trouble during the gfc but then we saw big problems during march 2020 now recently we saw what happened in the united kingdom uh, with the pension funds and so yes. on yeah. and the point is that this sector has grown in leaps and bounds since the gfc partly because the banking sector has been retrenching um and it is while on balance, obviously, it's less leveraged than the banking system. Uh, it is still rife with hidden leverage and hidden liquidity mismatches. And then, therefore, there are pockets of vulnerability that you might see in the commercial real estate sector, in the private, in the private credit sector, private equity, and so on and so forth. But if there is something, the two issues that we should keep in mind. First of all, that it's the generic, it's the bigger picture. The fact that we're seeing higher interest rates in the context of bringing inflation down with high levels of debt, high asset prices, and quite a bit of risk taking that has followed the period of interest rates that have been low for long. So that's the first point. And the second point, I've been in this business for long enough to know that we, if there is something that uh, is bound to happen is that we're going to have surprises somewhere. I mean, the counter argument to that is that these institutions tend to be not systemic, which means if one Correct. of those blows up, they don't blow up the entire economy, like the big banks. Yeah. Are you, do you share that? Uh, do you share the view? Or is it, well, the whole point, I mean, let me stress that part of the shift of risk outside the banking system uh, was intended. Uh, right. It was intended that regulation said, OK, we're going to be protecting more the banking system and we'll have this risk shifting outside. Uh, the overall system, in, uh, the overall risk in the system, therefore, because of its better distribution, would uh, would be smaller. Um, what was not anticipated at the time was that the regulation of the sector didn't keep up. 
and uh, we have been arguing for quite some time that there is an urgent need to, to improve it. But having said that, this, this sector as a whole is less systemic than banks. On the other hand, we should not underestimate the direct and indirect exposures uh, with the banking system itself. Mm -hmm. The links, essentially, with the banking yeah. system. Um, I want to touch upon a, a broader subject, which is, uh, there's a lot of talk about it at the moment, which is this idea of de deglobalization or decoupling of major economies. Uh, yeah. And I was curious to, to hear your perspective on whether you think that's a, a phenomenon that's happening, a temporary phenomenon, a long-term structural trend. Where, where are we going with that? Um, you know, as they say, it's, it's very difficult, it's very tricky to make predictions, especially about the future. So um, I wouldn't like to, to say uh, what will happen. Uh, I, I think what is happening is in front of all of us and we can see it. Um, clearly, there is a, uh, a certain uh, retrenchment from uh, the the unfettered globalization that we had in the past, and in, this is largely the result, I would say, of geopolitical uh, geopolitical factors. Now, what I can say is that a world uh, uh, which is more fragmented, or, mm. or whichever way, uh, whichever term you you want to have, is a world in which uh, potential growth is lower. And it is also a world in which the uh, it is structurally more inflationary. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have emphasized a lot that one uh, important force driving uh, inflation down and keeping it down and helping central banks to hardwire low inflation has been the globalization of the of the real economy, which in effect has weakened the pricing power of both firms and of labor. Um, so a, a world which is going to be more fragmented, in which this underlying forces are going to be weaker, it's also a world in which, if you like, central banks will have to work harder in order to keep, in, keep inflation low. And I want to conclude on a, on a more, I know you study philosophy as well, so on a more philosophical <laughs> point, I wonder whether once things settle down again and we look back at this as you call the unprecedented period in central banking history and economic history, we will need to look at the tools that central banks have, the way they, they conduct their economic policy, even their, their inflation targets, whether there are some things we can learn from it and lead to, diff, to, to changes in, in the setup that we've had for such a long time. So let me, um, let me point to three possible lessons, if, if you like. And let me stress, they don't apply to central banks specifically. They, they apply to policymakers more generally and to all of us, if, if you like. Yes. The, the first one is to, to beware of what I would call cognitive biases. And, and, and the one that I have particularly in mind now is that just because something hasn't happened for a long time, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. Right. And if we go back to the uh, Weltanschauung, the way that people looked at the world before, uh, before COVID, it was a world uh, in which, um, you remember the new normal, in, yeah. in which effectively the big enemy was going to be forever low deflationary forces. Yes. A world in which interest rates will stay low for as far as I could see. Now, that was the, that the, uh, the, wor the world that faced this huge pandemic shock. 
And the, this huge pandemic shock, together with the policy response to that shock, yeah, basically what was uh, what led to to inflation. Um, the second, I would say, general lesson from that is that policy needs to be nimble. It needs to be nimble, not just in terms of both in terms of recognizing change and in terms of responding to to that change. And the framework that you put in place has to be nimble uh, in that sense. Now, if we look at uh, what happened, um, I, uh, what we argued in the previous year's annual report was that the length through which people were looking at inflation was uh, a, a little bit too limited. And I mentioned the inflation expectations. Yes. But more general sense that uh, the structure of the, inf the, the inflation process itself was independent of its level. Uh, and in fact, what we described in the previous year was that inflation behaved very differently at low and at high levels, and that transitions from low to high inflation regimes tend to be self-reinforcing yeah. for a number of reasons and so on that we don't need to go in here and yes. discuss now. But it's why we're particularly concerned with, with that. And also nimble in responding to it. And um, uh, I think the fact that, for example, people will look back and say, was forward guidance, strict forward guidance, one of the factors that somehow made it harder for central banks to, to react to the inflation process. Forward guidance finally, for, for the people who don't know, forward guidance is oh, when banks yeah, tell you what they're going to do next. Right. Exactly. They but talk about their policy gonna, going forward. But not just what they're going to be doing next in, uh, you know, in the next few months, but possibly even in the next two to three years, which was really part of the, part of the problem. And I, I would say that the more fundamental lesson, um, which applies uh, equally to fiscal and monetary policy, and on which we spend a lot of time, uh, a, a, a number of pages in our annual economic report, is the fact that policy needs to be realistic. It needs to be realistic about what it can and it cannot do. And we think yeah. that one of the reasons why we ended up where we ended up with uh, fiscal policy having debt-to-GDP levels that are at historical peaks and monetary policy having interest rates that are at historical lows until the recent increase is precisely a certain lack of realism. Uh, the general sense, the general idea here is that there is a kind of growth illusion uh, yeah. in the sense that policymakers have been uh, overestimating the extent to which um, uh, growth can be driven by demand management policies, and they, they have been had have had unrealistic expectations about the effectiveness of demand management policies, and as a result of that, there has been probably a largely unintended uh, de facto excessive reliance of these policies to drive to drive growth. Now, specifically in the case of uh, of central banks, where did this? Uh, if you like, excessive or um, overly ambitious view of what uh, monetary policy could do get reflected in this idea that you could fine tune inflation. Right. Uh, and I think that w that was one of the reasons why interest rates were as low as, as they were, particularly post GFC, where yes. there were big attempts to try and get inflation up towards this magic 2% number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but uh, it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you for your time. This is further proof to my mind that it, Italy always exports its best minds, you know, present <laughs> comfortably. 
absolutely included. But thank you so much, uh, Claudio Borio, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlish in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and assist the podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.